Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the AMPS podcast. My name's Owen Peters. And I'm Owen Shirley. And we're sorry to be bringing you this episode of the podcast uh, because it features an interview with AMPS member John Aldred, who sadly passed away very recently. Yeah, we were really sad to hear the news. Um, We met John for the first time, like a few people, via the AMPS online social. And he quickly became an icon of the social, really being very generous with his time and telling some great stories. Yeah, it was a genuine privilege to get to know John in a very small way via these um, socials that we've been running throughout this pandemic. Um, His career is remarkable. Look him up on IMDb. It starts in the 1930s. Um, He effectively retired before Owen and I were even born. Um, And he really does have some world-beating anecdotes Yeah, so AMPS member Andrew Wilson couldn't resist the opportunity to travel down and meet John in person in his garden and record an interview about his life and career. So we're happy to be able to bring you this interview uh, as the next podcast episode. It's actually the first part of two brought from John Aldred's garden, uh, where Andrew discusses his whole career, first in post-production sound and then production sound. And it'll be closely followed by a second part in the following weeks, which brings some other really interesting and enlightening details. So here's Andrew Wilson to introduce the interview with John Aldred. Hello, everybody. Uh, Welcome to uh, the latest AMPS podcast. Um, I'm uh, Andrew Wilson. I'm here today with um, John Aldred, who uh, I'm not certain because I haven't done the research fully, but he may be our oldest member of the association. I'm not sure I know of anybody older. Well, I may tell you that uh, I was invited to join uh, when the society was first formed, and uh, the journal, I used to subscribe to that to assist him in filling up the pages. I used to write uh, lengthy articles about various uh, um, people in the industry at the very beginning, like 1880 or something like that. Wow. Edison and others. <laughs> cool. Um, so uh, in, in, in what I've been able to, to look up fairly easily, um, uh, so your, your first credit on, on IMDB, which is what most people take as being the, the kind of uh, yeah, the, the go-to database, yes. uh, is 1937. Yes, well, I was <clears throat> 16 years old at that stage, and right. it's uh, where I first started. So uh, a thing that I'm immediately curious about, I mean, we all have a reason of, of how and why we got into the business, yeah. but um, uh, in 1937, um, film sound was very, very early days. I mean, it was... Uh, it's only 10 years since the jazz singer. So I'm curious what drove the 16-year-old John to want to work in sound. Well, um, my, my father was a dental surgeon and one of his patients was head of sound at Shepperton Studios. That was the connection. And uh, all, all my life I've been interested in moving pictures. In fact, when I was quite young, I said I'd like a projector, and I was told to save up if I wanted one. So I saved 12 shillings and sixpence and produced this, uh, bought this machine, which had no take-up, so all the film ran on the floor. But nevertheless, it produced a moving image, maybe a 100-foot spool, that's about it, but uh, that's excited me enough. Yeah, but, but that was presumably silent. Of course it was. So... So what made... I mean, it was, was it just the toe in the, the foot it in the door? It just happened to be a coincidence that I entered the sound department. Right. Um, at the very beginning, um, I did uh, get one or two other jobs uh, around because um, my first job ended in being made redundant when the production finished. So I went to another studio in the camera department for a little while, uh, but I came back into sound, and sound has been my main interest. But in, in those days, we had uh, quite, quite modern equipment. Uh, we had an RCA truck, which was very well appointed. It was actually studio equipment compressed into a truck with batteries and stuff. And we had uh, another system, which has long since passed into history, and not even a mention of it in any 
article that I can find, which is called Visatone. Did you ever come across Visatone? No, that's a new one on me. It was made by the Marconi company in conjunction with the gramophone company, now EMI. And they produced this uh, sound on film equipment, which was uh, a bit sort of like a battleship. And it didn't it worked most of the time. Uh, but the trouble was, in those days, trying to synchronise motors. Right. Uh, the, uh, that theory of three phase was in its infancy. Right. And uh, they didn't do a very good job of it. Uh, the RCA one was much better. They used mains voltage three phase motors all round, and that was a that was a joy to work with. Wow. Okay. And of course, back then, all the sound recording would have been optical. Yes. The sound cameras. People tend to forget these days with m m uh, magnetic equipment and digital being the way we do things. It, it was photographic sound, so you had to have a knowledge of, of photography. Right. And in 1935, um, not the people that knew about photographing sound were few and far between. Uh, even in the laboratories, uh, it was not. It was just coming into a stage where they had a standard procedure for processing. Because sound is just like a picture. If the sound negative is the wrong density, then you can't get the correct print. Right. And there's nothing worse than having sibilant sound, which is what happens if you don't get things right. Uh, so that was a that was a situation as then. And, um, I mean, I, I don't really know how, how it would have worked then, but, but presumably they would shoot on location with a, with a sound camera, and that was separate sound? Yes, we mm -hmm. took a, a whole, whole equipment with us, a complete sound channel, a studio-type channel, uh, to record everything, because it was long, long before tape recording, which was uh, about 53, roughly. Right. But long before that, we just took a, a big sound truck. It was like a, well, a, a, a five-ton truck. There was a lot of car batteries involved, wow. together with the equipment being heavy. Then you had to put, put yourself in there and construct a mini monitoring room. And you had to have a... A boom, boom in the back, which you could take a studio-type boom. So it's quite a, a big operation. Mm. And um, I mean, the the microphones of the day were well, they were horrendous, really. <laughs> um, we had this thing, a Visatone microphone, and they, um, I believe, EMI had designed this condenser mic, which was supposed to be superior to all others. Well, it probably was, but it was so damn sibilant. We had five layers of silk over the diaphragm to try and cool it. Wow. <laughs> and it was a long thing. It was like a, the preamplifier had to be near the capsule. So on the end of a boom, you had a big, heavy preamp and a little mic underneath. And um, terrible. Extraordinary. In um, retrospect. And was most of the shooting indoors, on stages, or...? Or yes. Would you use this? Would you use, actually go out into exterior? Well, we did go so. exterior. One of my, one of my first film, first film was uh, a film about uh, trawlers going out of Grimsby, and um, we went up there for a week, and uh, all went well. Um, we had recorded live sound at the quayside um, when the sun shone. Uh, but um, on the final day, there was, there was no real shooting as such, so we, we were doing wild tracks and pick up stuff. And um, a trawler came by, and our, our boom operator made some signals saying, blow your whistle. So he did, right opposite the mic. And uh, the Galvo flew off its mount and landed on the floor. We never did find it. It was on the truck floor somewhere. That was our final Galvo, because in these day, those days, it was variable area with a galvanometer. And uh, as I said, this Visatone equipment was a bit iffy. But without a mirror on the Galvo, you're lost, aren't you? <laughs> so what, what happened to Visatone? It just became it just, out of fashion? Or? Yes, it just vanished. It, it's, um, uh, I think, um, 
they struggled to try and sell some portable equipment, which they, they sold more portable gear than studio gear. Right. But for example, they had a, a, a sort of a, a really crude re-recording setup. They had a playoff machine with three heads, mechanically coupled to a projector. And these three heads were such that if you wanted to run a loop of sound, you had to come and get the film and make, make a join and prepare the loop on site after it was threaded up. And the picture was about the size of a home movie or less, about two foot across. And uh, there was not very much dubbing in those days because it deteriorated as you went from generation to generation. Right. A lot of people don't know this, even sound men, that um, when you get a sound print, if it's a black and white film, printed on black and white stock, and check it against a colour film on colour stock. There was a 4 dB sound difference, the colour being a greater volume due to the ex excellent contrast. Interesting. So that, that upset one or two people when they'd finished the film and done the optical and found that cinemas were not accounting for this, playing it up. And um, and how would in in those very early days how would they have gone about the actual re-reporting process or was there really very little? I mean, they, presumably they well, it was just coming into music. fashion. It, it was already established in the states, in right. Hollywood, but in England it was just coming into fashion to 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 mix the whole reel. That was mainly because processing was getting better year by year, and uh, the st film stocks were improving. And uh, it was considered necessary to, to re-record, as you would expect, right. to get a nice polished result. Because when you, when you cut ordinary sync sound together throughout a picture, levels go up and down and quality changes, and you know as well as I do that it's not really acceptable. And of course music uh, comes into it. If you want to put music under a scene, as we do, um, that's an You've got to dub it. You've got to mix it. Complete, complete reels. In whole reel, no stopping. Yeah. In fact, I, I, I worked on a, uh, a Hitchcock picture, and uh, he was experimenting with shooting ten-minute takes. Now that takes a lot of rehearsal, about two days at least, probably three days. So you don't get many takes in a week, perhaps two. But he gave it up after a while. Um, I always remember on one occasion we, we'd been shooting this thing and the, the Technicolor camera had to glide through the set which sprung apart on motorised doors and then it turned round and came back the other way through motorised doors and everybody did very well and we just got to the last bit and then the stills man thought, well, that's good, I'll take a still. And he, put, he had his flash on. So that was not considered the thing to do, and we never saw him again. <laughs> Unbelievable. Because uh, the long take thing has sort of come back. I mean, 1917... Uh, yes, yes. ..just very recently... Yes, it has. ..featured some very, very long takes. But it was unusual in those days. We had to, had to lay a special floor over in the studio of tarmac right. for, the, for, the, for the camera crane to manoeuvre about with, without it Wobbling. jarring a bit. Uh, it has come back, but I don't think it's here to stay. It's just a one-off. Yeah. So, um, and then at some point along came the war. Uh, how did that affect things for you? As far as I'm concerned, um, I was young enough to be called up into the army. So I was working on a film called In Which We Serve, about uh, mountain battens. Just, uh, his destroyer was sunk in the Mediterranean. And... Um, it was uh, quite an interesting film, and right in the middle of it, they yanked me off into the army. And uh, a gentleman taking my place had been invalided out of the Navy. He was a submariner. But as far as I could see, he was perfectly healthy. But at any rate, he, he, he seemed to understand knobs and dials and things, and it didn't matter if it was film or anything. He got on very well. He, he, he learnt the trade in about a couple of days. Um, so, and then I entered the army at that stage. Um, and did, in your army time, was that more military or were you still involved with film work in the army? Well, it was um, 
rather a fortunate coincidence because round about the time of my call-up, um, the War Office was considering setting up a film unit at Pinewood Studios and they called upon industry giants, so to speak, to suggest a few names who might be suitable people to uh, employ at Pinewood. And my name came along and I was told to join the Army. Don't join the Navy, don't join the Air Force, join the Army and we'll find you. So I joined the Army and um, right I was invalided out, it wasn't really like that, but uh, I had to go into hospital having got a big hernia playing football. So I ended up in hospital and, and whilst I was there, a runner came in and said, when you're discharged, you're not going back to your units, you're going to go to Pinewood Studios. So I nearly wet the bed, I thought, my goodness. <laughs> The system works. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And just as well, because the unit I was with, they went out to El Alabane and were never seen again. Mm. Right. Lucky escape, in a way, yeah. In a way. Yeah. Yes. So uh, I um, came out of hospital and went to be rehabilitated at an army sort of convalescent home, where I, I, I produced a concert, a one-hour concert for all the inmates, which went down quite well. Um, then afterwards I said goodbye and uh, I cycled over from this, where I was, the, near Ascot. I cycled over to Pinewood and just arrived and they knew nothing about this. And the, the, the adjutant was confused beyond belief. See, this, 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 this dishevelled looking ordinary soldier appear in his office. Because if, if you appear in, in that unit without any stripes on, you're a driver or an undertaker or something, and nothing important. Right, right. Um, at any rate, that was, about, was how I got to Pinewood. Right. And then, did you stay there after the war? Or? No, in fact, I never worked at Pinewood, for Pinewood, in my, in my life. Huh? I've always uh, used Pinewood. I'm well known at Pinewood. And I still go there, actually, because on the wall in the corridor there, there's a, a plaque showing the cameraman who will be killed during the war in the Army and the Air Force film units, which were stationed there. Right. OK. Um, yeah. But I've always worked at other, any other studio you name, I'd probably be working at, but right. not this one. Just not Pinewood. No, I, but I um, came out of, of the... Uh, of the army eventually. Uh, two things happened. I was getting married, I bought a house and I bought a car and I was going to work for Anvil at uh, Beaconsfield Studios. They were just taking that over and I was sort of rubbing my hands saying what a lucky boy I am. I've got a job to go to. Then out of the blue I got a phone call from Douglas Shearer to say he was setting up a sound department at Elstree. Would I be interested? And uh, when he quoted the salary, I was extremely interested. Um, so I ended up living in a house in High Wycombe and working for MGM at Boreham Wood, which is 28 miles. So the pal of mine, um, on the same, uh, he was doing the same sort of journey, so we palled up in one car and we survived several years under those circumstances. And um, I went over there and uh, I learned quite a bit, actually, because the the first few months was installation, and it was brand new Western Electric equipment, and it was specifically made for MGM. You couldn't buy it from the catalogue of Western Electric. It was custom built, and it was the very latest photographic technology, push-pull, and free emphasis came into it. In those days, it was unheard of. But when we ran our rushes every day under that system, it, it sounded just like magnetic. It was perfect. Wow. And, uh, and you were still mainly studio-based, more post-production at that stage? Or? At that stage, I was doing maintenance. Oh, right. Because of installation and general maintenance. Uh, but when the... The occasion arrived when they had to get a dubbing crew together for the first job. I was assistant mixer. Yeah. And I stayed that way. 
and and around that time how many people would have been involved in the mixing two two mixes yes always always two, always two. N never three right. well the only time we did have three mixes if we were doing stereophonic right. because of the, the nature of the equipment the, the desks the mixing desks were all mono but um, we had a, a small unit in front which took mono feeds and um, spread it around left, right and centre. So uh, uh, you mentioned um, magnetic. Um, so at what point did that come in? Early 50s? Uh, trying to think. Yes, it would be. Yeah. But the film industry was slow in taking up magnetic. I mean, the German magnetophone was, during the war, they were using magnetic tape, as you know. And it was a long time for the industry to adapt. I think it was because film equipment is naturally expensive. And to, to design and, and manufacture magnetic systems against the photo, purely photographic systems, when you're already fully equipped with photographic, is something not, not many studios could contemplate. Um, this is about, I'm talking about the recording side, not the exhibition side. Um, so first, the equipment we had was, was quite simple to adapt because you had to just mount a, a magnetic head just inside the drum on the stabilising shaft, and that seemed to work quite well, free of flutter. And was that a separate magnetic track, or was it on the print? In those days, you didn't have the combined. Oh, oh no! Oh, no! Split. Very separate. Yes, right. Right. yes. And so on thirty-five. Thirty-five. Yes, the thirty-five stripe, which I hated. Um, thirty-five full coat was my my preference. Right. Uh, that that is manufactured under, under controlled conditions, and you get a, you get you know you get a thousand foot roll. You know there's nothing wrong with it. Stripe is something that's sort of applied from a liquid that comes out of a pot and dribbles onto the film. And it's right. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, and of course, then no, there was no noise reduction. No. It was before there was the likes of Dolby noise reduction and what have you. Oh, absolutely, so, yes. So well, that, that was years later. Yeah, yeah. But you, you would have had to have been quite careful about how many layers you added or how many generations you went through? Um, or was it? No, was it... not so much. Okay. Not so much. Right. Uh, it's better than photographic. Right. And, and when you were mixing, would you, were the, would the director be there all the time? Or did it they, all depends. they trust uh, with it? If the director is at all interested, of course he would be there, but I was surprised at the number of occasions where he never even bothered to come, left it to the editor. On one occasion, uh, this, this man came, uh, I'll tell you two stories. The first one, uh, he, he came and we ran the first reel. He didn't like any of the sound effects that had been laid. He didn't like the music. and. Um, he wanted it all redone, which took... The poor editors had to go search around for new stuff, and it took them a couple of days, during which our studio was rented out to them. But at any rate, so when we started up again, the producer had sent a legal letter to the director that he was not to communicate with me except through him. So if the, if the director wanted to do something, he had to ask the producer, who would then... Related to me. And on another occasion, a gentleman not really in, well, not really understanding the process of re recording was George Cuker, who was a very famous American yeah. director, and his speciality was in performances out of the artists. You know, it doesn't matter if they were standing in the right position or not, as long as they said it right. Right. And um, he was still directing in the dubbing theatre. 
You're saying, I want, I want this man to be more forceful because he's supposed to be angry. And so after about three or four days, we managed to get him banned from coming in the theatre <laughs> so that we could get on and dub the picture. Um, and we subsequently found that we were not the first ones. But back in Hollywood, he's banned all over from going anywhere near a mixing theatre. Brilliant. Did you, in those days, was there, was there, did you do ADR? Yes, quite a lot of it. Right. Um, and for technical reasons or for performance reasons or both? Mainly technical, but um, when we did it for, perform for performance, it was someone like Michael Caine, for example. Um, I used to go up to him and said, I didn't quite hear some of the offset on the last take, you know, can you sort of... He said, oh, don't bother, son, don't bother, just going to aid it up, don't bother. And as a sound mixer, you're trying to get the best you can. And when you're told not to bother, it takes a sort of spirit out of the whole procedure. Yeah. But um, generally speaking, there's a mixture of doing it for either because it was necessary or because it was uh, not there in the first place. Right. Or, for instance, quite often the camera would be running at the wrong speed. Oh. So when the, when the, when the, when you came the rushes, it was all Mickey Mouse. <laughs> what? Why? Why off speed though? Just error, or or was it just well the, mechanically? The failing? cameras uh, on the equipment we had they had separate start boxes, and the cameras were DC motors and the, the camera crew are supposed to adjust the speed. They never did, so we had to do that. And then when we went for a take, we'd run up, and then it, if it was the right speed, it would lock into the, our three-phase generator. Um, but um, on this occasion, it didn't, didn't lock in, but uh, that's what happens. But no, no, no I was just, uh, when I was doing production mixing they were just using crystal motors which made life a joy right so um again looking sort of through imdb for there's a, a stage in the early 50s where you're repeatedly credited as dubbing crew which presumably was a well, sort of one size fits all name for the dubbing crew doesn't uh, well, it just covers a whole multitude right. of things just the gang it's, it's um it doesn't say whether I'm in charge or not. <laughs> uh, but then, um, then there's another interesting one. When we get to 1955, the Cockleshell Heroes. Yes. Uh, you're credited there as dubbing mixer and music recordist. Yes, I, I used to I used to rec do mixing, music mixing as well, but when required. Um, it's in in the studio, that's the score mixing. Yeah, yes, you you using a scoring stage because we usually. Had orchestras come down for each picture separately. Right. Um, Cockleshell here was one of the first music sessions I did actually. So when I first went to Shepperton Studios, um, after I'd left uh, Hollywood in Hertfordshire, they called MGM. <laughs> um, and I spent two weeks doing footsteps and paddling. I got a bit bored with that. <laughs> So music came as a nice little bit of different, right. something different. Fantastic. Yes, but I did, uh, I, I did that. Um, presumably by um, the late 50s, early 60s, we're now entirely magnetic recording? Oh, yes. It, it was um, during those cockleshell heroes' time, we were in the middle of changing over to magnetic. I think I was recording the music on magnetic, but... In, in, in the dubbing theatre, they were still handling photo tracks from uh, um, some other early films, so we were changing over. But one uh, film I was interested in, we had a seven-track seven track mag sent to us to cope with. It was a Cinerama project, and... Uh, this guy left his equipment as well, and we had to um, make a standard 
um, six track mag out of it and mix it. Uh, that was the only difference. Not, not normally we had uh, just a three track record, three or four track recorder. Four track would be with a surround sound, which you'd use that as a master to, to transfer to 70 millimeter. Right. Or 35, I should but say. Presumably most of the prints were still going out in mono uh, at that time. For most of the cinema. No. No? No, three-track. No. Three-track. Right. Three mm -hmm. Like the CinemaScope format. That, that wouldn't be mono. Right. Well, there were mono prints available because not every cinema could afford right. to change over. <laughs> So we had to make a mono mix as well. Would you would you down mix the surround mix or the stereo mix, or, yes. or would you have to replicate? Yes, um, we just down mix the stereo. But now, if it didn't work, we just took out a track that didn't work and substituted a loop or something. Right. So what, what happened at um, Elstree was that MGM tried to introduce their own system of stereo, which was um, Perspector sound. Have you ever heard of Perspector sound? <laughs> well, it's weird because they use controlled tones, low frequency, which you added in as required, and it moved a mono track across the screen. So it was quite effective for dialogue because you could position it where the artist was. What it also did was take all the background with it and the music and everything, and it all <laughs> gave you a felt a bit seasick or airsick right. just listening to this and <laughs> it didn't last very long. Right. Did, did formats come and go a lot then? Well they seemed to be experimental and right. very expensive to you had to have all these tone generators in the theatre during each for each cinema to reproduce it and also for the studio to record it. Right. And presumably every time somebody invented some new format it, it, there was a investment in yes, equipment we had, we needed had a, to produce it. We had a guy at, uh, he came and, and said, well, we'd like to listen to his stereophonic microphone. So he brought this thing in and he left it with us to play with, but we were not allowed to take it to pieces. So we don't know what was inside because well, it was a big crackle on one track. But um, we did some stereo experiments, which proved that you could have positioning across. Um, but it never came to anything, and we never took him up on his offer of uh, um, stereophony. But, um, so, uh, in terms of your of the location sound at that time, everything was recorded mono. Oh, absolutely! Yes, right. yes. Um, round about that time, we had this famous Levers Rich, which you may or may not have heard of, yeah. which recorded audio on fifty percent and a camera pulse on the other half so um, providing it, the camera providing the camera was running at the right speed uh, it worked very well indeed right. and the, the actual mixing then was still could you um, drop it did you still have to do a whole reel or at what point did you get the ability to to punch into record mid reel um, very not until I was some time at Shepperton. Right. Um, it was uh, you just have to go back, do the whole reel, old ten minutes worth. Uh, Pinewood had an awful job in uh, getting this Westrex punch-in system working. Um, I don't think it ever did work successfully, because um, I can remember that uh, they, they used. They had to go into the one theatre, they shut one down while it was sorted out by a couple of engineers. I don't think they got, they got it working, but uh, it was a bit of a hassle. And what happened was that West, West Electric had sort of designed the system and installed it without making sure it, 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 it did so many snags. And uh, it, it's probably fairly shocking for some of the, the younger people listening to this that everything was was done manually. You had there was no recall of anything, other than your own brain and and notes. There was so everything your your 
Yes, EQ, nothing. your compressors, your yes. uh, reverbs, we had, we had, uh, levels. We had one unit made by Magnetech, which we could use for taking out camera noise. And we shared it with other theatres, you know, can I, can I have this tomorrow? I only want it for a morning. <laughs> yeah, you could have it back in the afternoon. I mean, that was the sort of thing. Right. Amazing. I was uh, confronted with a scene. Um, fortunately, everyone was shouting and screaming, and it was a, an Ariflex unblimped. Uh, that, that produces a lot of camera noise. I bet. <laughs> uh, in, in a tunnel, it was. With this Magnatec, I managed to eliminate it entirely. Which surprised the production company. Do they then assume they can just get away with it? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, they thought, I don't know how, how they thought they could at the time, but they did. They didn't loop it or anything, there was nothing like that. Which wasn't even the option of that. So, uh, you're at Shepparton by now, and um, just so we're into sort of the early 60s? Yes, I stayed at Shepparton until uh, 1970. Right. Um, and was that I mean, in, in the 60s, you did a, a few fairly, fairly big movies. Yes, I worked quite hard there. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, there are some iconic films there. In the list, you know. I mean, just looking at one or two of the, of the movies that were going through around that time, um, I mean, the really big names, Lawrence of Arabia. That's the one. Yes, every time we finished a reel of Lawrence of Arabia, Sam Spiegel gave us a cigar, you see, and I don't smoke. So I thought, oh, I'll keep it for later. But this kept coming, these cigars, with the 24 reel picture, so like quite a supply. And um, I did try one once when I turned a sickly colour green and, and uh, decided not to finish the cigar and disquiet, quietly got rid of it. And I gave all these 23 remaining cigars to my uncle who jumped with joy. Yeah. Well, that was quite a, I mean, that's quite a well-known film. Yes, we uh, had, an after, had a little party afterwards up in town and um, a royal premiere. And I can remember after the premiere, it was getting quite late at night, so we were taken to these sort of rooms, restaurant, and plates of sandwiches and drinks. And we thought, well, this is a nice little knees up. So we were ravenous, so we all stuck, got stuck into these sandwiches. And then when we'd had enough, the big doors opened, and a, a guy said, dinner is served. And we had a whole three-course meal after that about midnight. Never stuffed myself so much. Another one from a couple of years later, Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove. That's... That was our friend Stanley Kubrick. Uh, yes, we um, got, got, got work for him. He seemed to enjoy asking for me. And um, I remember doing sound effects for him, and, uh, rushing around the studio. And he said, no, you, you just stay. I want you to stay. Don't move. Whatever I do, stay where you are. So it turned over. He went up and down, shouting all sorts of things. Well, they turned left, round the corner. Quite effective when you play it against what he was trying to do in the film. Right. But mad at the time. I mean, <laughs> was he hard work or was he fun? Um, he was hard work, and especially demanded your full attention, twenty-four-seven. Uh, and it, it, it's uh, quite likely that um, you get phoned at home as well. Yep. He's got some thought coming to his head about the following day or something's happened during the day. And uh, on one occasion he phoned about half past ten at night and my wife answers and she said, you can't speak to him, he's gone to bed. You can't speak to him. Well, you'll speak to him tomorrow. Brilliant. <laughs> he also, Brilliant. Kubrick's uh, very fussy about sound and picture. And you know, if, nothing, if you produce a print of a, of, a, of a reel and he accepts it, he expects all the release prints, perhaps 500 release prints, to be exactly the same. And if they're not, he rejects it. 
and he, he, he does employ an, an editor to go around the country just watching the exhibition of this film of his and uh, report back on, on, on the quality of the print. Amazing perfectionist then? Yes. I mean, he had an editing machine at home, um, but he did just, just a view stuff. Right. No, he, yes, a perfectionist in every way. And he, was, he also had a, a, a Nikon camera which he would follow around with and take photographs of you in all sorts of compromising positions. When, 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 you're, when you're dubbing, you, your mind's focused on something and you're doing things, and he would be click, 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 the side. And you did tell us a story about Stanley Kubrick and some whiskey. Oh, Stanley Kubrick, for all his eccentric behaviour, was an extremely generous man because um, he always wanted to show his appreciation at the end of all his films, if you worked on it. Um, and he'd have a message, the production office would ring up and say, Stanley's left some whiskey for you if you care to drop by. So I said, oh, that's nice, thank you. So I dropped by and expected to see a bottle wrapped up. Instead of which, there's a wooden case there. So I lifted up the wooden case, and then when I opened it, there were five bottles of single malt, and the label was said, specially blended for John Aldrin. So that was his thinking. In subsequent years, I used to get Napoleon brandy, and I hate that. It's really gut-wrenching stuff, but uh, it was a nice thought. Did you keep a bottle? Even an empty one? No, I'll tell you why. Um, because some few years after that, we moved house and things got dumped. Uh, not by you. Not, uh, <laughs> I know what you're saying. Let's move on. Um, I mean, I don't think, I think if, um, you know, if anybody out there has got a better anecdote than Stanley Kubrick bought me specially blended whiskey, then I'd love to hear that one because I think that's 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 way up there. Uh, that's very good. Um, uh, now, from what I, I know on here, it was somewhere around that time you started to go more out of the studio. Yes, I, I, what happened was that I'd been uh, uh, re-recording mixer for a number of years, probably 20 or something like that. And um, I thought it'd be rather nice to work out to the side in the sunshine, it, you know, it'd be very pleasant. So um, I did, in, I did uh, terminate my employment, much against the, the head of sound who thought I was doing the wrong thing. And I, I did, did some production mixing because it's good training a production mixer, if he does a bit of mixing in the theatre first, he knows quite a lot more than he would do otherwise. And I went down and um, I took a, an Agra recorder we had in those days and um, directional microphones who were just coming in and we went down to Hever Castle doing a film about Anne of a, Anne of a Thousand Days, Anne Boleyn. And that was my first... Um, venturing into feature production mixing and uh, the uh, in um, that area rather like Salisbury Plain there are no aeroplanes and no traffic and you could get very long dialogue scenes which pleased the producer because he got through the script much quicker and um, I managed to get some some reasonable sound I got, I got a letter somewhere from the head of sound at the studio saying how excellent the uh, quality was. Um, and am I right in thinking that got you an Oscar nomination? And of a thousand days I had an Oscar nomination. Um, it's an unusual that picture because not only did I do all the production mixing and post sync plus all the mixing in the theatre for 35 and 70 millimeter versions I think that might be... That's, that's not usual. No, no, I think that might be almost... I think it might be unique. I don't know if anybody else has had an Oscar nomination for doing 
production sound and post-production sound on the same movie. I know Walter Murch had nominations for picture editing and sound mixing. Yes. But yeah, to do yeah, the location and the post on a movie soundtrack and get an Oscar nomination, I think And it was the most primitive mixing console because it was a, an RCA which we had modified. We'd put those quadrant records, quadrant mixers that were favoured at the time, took out the twisters. Uh, basically, the console was the same with its very basic equalisers. Um, anyway, that's the way that you're sometimes lucky, sometimes you're not. Depends what the opposition is that particular year. Right. Whether you're successful or not. For End of a Thousand Days, uh, the other nominees were Marooned, Chicago, Chicago, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I would think that one. It was Hello Dolly one. Was it? Yeah. You're telling me. <laughs> Did you go? Did you go to the Oscars? No. Oh. Well, don't get time off for going to Oscars. At least I didn't. But there was a, a guy at Pinewood called Gordon McCullum, which received an Oscar, and he went to pick it up. So just to check, um, so your first go at production sound mixing was Anne of a Thousand Days? Yeah. And you got an Oscar nomination? Yeah. That's pretty good. It's downhill from there. <laughs> but it, you know, you're never a truer word. Because, um, um, and you also did the Italian job? Yes. Was that just on location? Yes. Uh, no, we went back to Twickenham. For, only for a few a few scenes at the end of the film. Uh, and then we went to, uh, spent a week in Ireland. I spent three days in jail and two days in a cemetery. So it's not exactly an exciting prospect. Just for the record, you, were, you were filming in jail. You weren't in jail. I personally was not in, I was just in there filming. Right. Mr. Right. Bridger. Oh, yes. It was the main character. Yeah. But it was rather strange because he was uh, in the barber chair in the prison, being, being, giving instructions. And it was all done in a fairly tight shot, which was fortunate because there was just room. Because there was things like this stand with lamps and diffusers and things on no no can. There's just room between his legs to put a little mic stand and that's what happened. Just out of picture. Amazing. <laughs> he, he must have been an interesting guy to work with. Hmm? He must have been an interesting chap to work with. Yes, he was a, he was a he just himself. Yeah. It's very um, uh, very easy. Yeah. I thought it was an extraordinary bit of casting to put. I think so. Him as a, the kind of prison. Uh, yes, it went. Mr. It, went it, was, it was came across very well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's one of my favourite films. Is it? Yeah, yeah. I have a book indoors, and it, it just it's about that thick, and it's all about it's based on the cars. That's the main story right. through it, but it, it's all intimate details of everything throughout the film, which is. It was um, shown recently because it's 50 years since it was released and they had a special party, which I was in hospital, so I couldn't go. But my son went and brought me back this huge book, which is autographed with the producer and the director's wife, the director's dead, and all. And the, got the chief of the racing car team doing all the effects, stuntmen. Uh, yeah, it was a... That's a good read. Yeah, that must have been an incredible project. I think so, yeah. yes. Uh, so the, the last entry in here is 1973, uh, Bequest to the Nation. That's, that um, was my last film at Shepparton. Um, it's the same producer that did Anne of a Thousand Days. And um, I, I, I could... I, I, I had uh, that bequest to the nation, and and um, I had another film. I went to uh, Vienna, the last, the, the Great Waltz, um, 
And then after that, those two pictures, I couldn't see anything on the horizon. And, and uh, you can usually get a gist of what's happening in the industry. And my wife said, uh, what are you going to do? She said, you know, I can't exist on nothing. So she said, you better get a job, proper job. <laughs> so at uh, that time, I, I, I found out that uh, Ranks Laboratories, their head of sound was retiring because in those days, 65 and you were out. So he was, he'd already gone 65, but they kept him on because his daughters were still at school. At any rate, um, they, they didn't advertise the job. It was word of mouth and people you know. And I got that job to go to after bequest of the nation. Uh, which I learned a whole lot more some things I didn't know before. So that's the end of part one of Andrew Wilson's interview with John Aldred, which we hope you all enjoyed. He really does have some incredible stories. I don't think I'll ever forget the story of being given a personalised, blended box of scotch from Stanley Kubrick. That really is... Uh, something magical indeed um, and we would really like to offer our thoughts and condolences to anyone who knew John or worked with him and obviously particularly his close friends and family he really did seem like uh, such a wonderful guy and, a, and really such a lovely sense of humour as well Yeah it was lovely to have met John um, and know him albeit a brief time um, so yeah we are sorry for the loss for all family and friends and just happy to be able to bring this uh, tribute via the podcast. In relation to that, we'd also like to offer the opportunity for anyone who feels a desire to express any thoughts to record a short audio tribute that we can add to the next episode um, in a few days' time. So if that's something that you'd like to do, then please get in touch with us uh, via our email, which is ampspodcast at gmail.com or our Twitter at Amps Podcast, and we can make arrangements to insert that into our next episode. Yeah, we'd like to you know, really celebrate John's life and career if possible, so anyone who has any memories um, that they'd like to share, then feel free to just record it however you can and, and send it to us, and, and we'll include everything in the next episode. Um, and so until then, all the best. <laughs>